This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. If you're wondering, I am Dr. Shane with a slightly modified voice today. Uh, Bron from Radio Marinara infected me last week with some vicious virus. And uh, if you heard her a couple of hours ago, you'll notice that she's still suffering, but my superior immune system has almost beat it off. <laughs> The person giggling in the studio is Dr. Lauren. Good morning. Good morning. I, I really hope mm. that you lose your voice completely now for that comment about your superior immune system. It will serve you right. I guarantee it will not happen <laughs> yeah. because I skull pineapple juice every day when I get this sort of problem. Really? Does that help? Yes, Fresh it does. or uh, really? with lots of sugar? Um, no, just out of a can. <laughs> As long as it's Completely fresh. somehow related to a pineapple, it's usually okay. <laughs> uh, Dr. Kramer, good morning. <laughs> You're well? Uh, I'm, uh, I'm well, and I'm not related to a pineapple, thank you very much. <laughs> That's good to hear. Um, yes, I'm well. And Dr. Crystal, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Perky. You're always perky. Uh, I cycled over here. It's a beautiful oh, d- it's day. It's a beautiful day. It's yeah. gorgeous. Yeah, no, I'm thinking of heading up to the Bull Railway later today because um, uh-huh. they've got a new engine. Uh-huh. Kids, kids love it. Kids. I, 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 I all the kids, yeah. Yeah, Dr. Shane doesn't I at all. I cannot stand it, but the kids love it. Um, you get to ride on them. So anyway, <laughs> let's talk about some science. Dr. Lauren, we'll start with you. What do you got? Some uh, news? I do have some news. Uh, I have some news about rats and the... the um, Key thing for this for me was that apparently rats like chocolate. That's yeah. really my my news of well, the day. They go up in my estimation. Yeah. <laughs> well, it depends what sort of chocolate though. If it's yeah. compound, oh That's no, it, yeah, no, no. they probably prefer eighty five percent. I'm pretty sure they like. The They're good pretty stuff. smart. Yeah, an experiment they are. For you. <laughs> but what the, what this experiment actually is looking at is whether or not rats feel empathy. And so it actually was a quite a cool little experiment done by a group in Japan where they had uh, two, two boxes side by side. One was filled with water. And there was a rat in there that was, you know, basically having to tread water. Now, rats don't like doing this at all. It wasn't in risk of dying, but it wasn't a very happy rat. But in the other side of the petition, there was a rat that was sitting on a little shelf and nice and safe and dry. And what they did is actually uh, train the rats that if the the dry rat pressed a button that would open the door and it would sort of save that rat that was drowning. So mm. they did this for a little while and they showed that that rat that was dry would all pretty much always do that. They'd, they'd open up the door and let the one get out of the water. Now, this has actually been shown before and the theory has always been that it's just because they want companionship. They, right. They're just lonely. They, yeah. they want a friend, basically. Uh, but what they did this time is they actually did the same sort of thing, but they had two doors and the other side was actually a chocolate treat. And so it was pretty much a choice where the rat could either save one from drowning or it could eat chocolate. And the good thing is, I, I think, you know, good, good for the, the rat kind, um, is that they would usually actually save the one that was in the water. And so what they're saying is that uh, it's the urge to help that fellow rat was at least as strong as the desire for food. And gives an indication that there might be an evolutionary basis for helpful behaviour. So it may not just be our environment and the way that we're raised, but it actually might be evolutionary that, that we help out others that are in distress. Um, this is a, a good paper. However, it's one of my, <laughs> however uh, every t- if I got a dollar for every time I heard an animal researcher say... Oh, but we didn't really, we assumed that this particular animal didn't show this human, this human-like behavior. Yeah, yeah. I could mm. be a millionaire. That's true. So, yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, so many examples. Mm. And the public's out there saying, I could have probably told you that. Yeah. 
<laughs> but we do have to do the research to prove it. Oh, it's to prove assumptions that we do have to do this research, but it. Mm. it not a surprise to me at all. I, well, mm. I always have the same questions with these sorts of biological mm. papers, and it's me, it's me because I, I was brought up with books like Lord of the Flies. Yeah. The question is, how hungry were the rats? Well, that's true. No, that's because a very good point. Yeah. There is a point. Yeah. And that's, yeah. see, if I was doing this experiment, that's yeah. what I'm interested in. Yeah. Just how hungry does a person have to be yeah. before they're willing to <laughs> screw <laughs> over their fellow rat yeah. for a piece of chocolate? Yeah, did yeah. they know? Did, did they, had they met before? You know, had they. Well, well, had actually. They, were they litter mates they, they or related things a bar together? I don't have that information. But they they did um, show that if the rat that was in charge of whether or not to save the other rat had been in the water themselves, they were more likely to help out. So you know okay. there was sort of Ooh. that. You know, yeah. I, I know what you're Empathy. going through exactly. I'll yeah. help you out, mate. I still not would, Very curious about the hunger level. Oh, definitely, definitely. Because <laughs> yeah. there comes a point. Mm. Yeah, and we learnt this. Yeah. All the flies. <laughs> exactly. That uh, we'll screw Poor each other over. Yep. Sad. <laughs> what, what are you wanting? <laughs> Dr. Crystal. Well, the fantastic news is that the um, the Ebola crisis is um, easing in West Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, Liberia has been declared Ebola free, and we're That's starting good. to see um, fewer and fewer new infections, and lots, lots of different regions and areas becoming declared disease free, which is fantastic. Mm. What it has thrown up is an interesting conversation around the naming of infectious diseases, and the WHO, the World Health Organization, this week has actually re- released some new guidelines for the naming of new human infectious diseases. And you might say, well, why is that important? You know, a rose by any other name, a, a virus by any other name <laughs> might infect as many people. But there can be quite a lot of stigma um, and insult and even fear um, that is put forward when you name diseases after people places and animals mm. and it can give people the wrong impression ah, um, around what they're called for example um uh, this is something that Lin Fa Wang, at the, uh, who is an expert in emerging infectious diseases here at the Australian Animal Health Laboratory in Geelong, has faced because he actually named the Hendra virus. Mm. And the Hendra virus was named after a suburb in Brisbane. But, of course, every time there's a Hendra outbreak, there's some very angry residents because their property mm, value wow. starts to go down when it's got nothing to do with is them. Mm, and so, mm. <laughs> because, yeah, it's just... And it has this misconception. It's like, whoa, would you buy a house in Hendra? Oh, isn't that, isn't that where they have the virus? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Can I make a personal comment? Suck it up, Hendra people. <laughs> my, name's, my name is Huntington. How do you think I blame you? <laughs> Exactly. And it's not just a beach. Well, is it Huntington? <laughs> exactly. So should you be naming diseases after people and mm. families? You know, and I, should I you... worry I'll somehow get it because it's my <laughs> <laughs> Case in point. And so the WHO has, mm. has put out these guidelines saying that you shouldn't name diseases after places, mm. after really? people, what do or you after mean? animals. What's left? Yeah. What's mm. left? Mm. I mean, for example, if you know, Ebola is named after a river. Mm-hmm. Right, okay. But if you were to but name sometimes it... sometimes rivers are named after people. And sometimes mm. rivers are named after people. It would, you, know, you might name it um, phylovirus associated hemorrhagic fever too. <laughs> it doesn't work. It isn't Quite very catchy. catchy, especially when the acronym yeah, is yeah. FAF. <laughs> <laughs> just H oh is it H five N one? See, it's hard to remember some of these. Some, yeah. some, yeah. some of the, the flu yeah. viruses, the H one N one, and things like that. And then, yeah. but they but they're commonly called bird flu or swine yeah, flu. But yeah. in a lot of cases, they're actually not involved with those animals anymore. But sometimes no, they are. And that's a problem too, because swine flu and the pig association is not necessarily mm. one that you want either. Exactly, yeah. and yeah. and you know, countries in the Middle East are complaining mm. about Middle East mm. respiratory syndrome, yeah. MERS right. being named after them. It's yeah. bad for tourism. It's bad for it's bad for commerce. It's bad for everything. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's bad for lots of things but what do you name them after you know yeah. do you name them after greek gods do you name them you know uh, yeah. the, <laughs> chair, like, the chair virus yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, i've got a bad case of apollo like it just, you, you know, could name after villains you know like you know 
someone who's been committed a crime or something. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. yeah. But this comes up quite a lot. How do you name um, tropical cyclones and hurricanes? They're named after a person. Yeah, Yeah, we don't really name earthquakes. Can can we just go back for a second? You just said name it after someone who's committed a crime. What kind of crime (laughs) means that the plague of the 21st century gets named after you? What would you have to do? Well, uh, (laughs) I stole this loaf of bread. Next thing you know, I'm the Hendra virus. (laughs) But then you come back to that problem about naming it is for discussion, um, but there can be a lot of stigma attached with things. I mean, originally AIDS was named gay-related, um, wow. you know, infectious disease. Yeah. Like so, um, so you know, there, yeah. there can be some really there's some stigma attached to mm. some of these these illnesses. And so, whether we call it disease number five or yeah. can I just make another personal comment though about my Senate? Um, because often I actually use it quite effectively when people say, "Is that a T-O-N?" You know, at the end, and they say, "Yeah, you know, just like the virus." <laughs> Just like the disease. But you know, I'm infected right now, so yeah, I'm getting out of it. But um but you know, I I, I always say that and they go, Oh yeah. Whereas <laughs> hunting Don, which is often misspelt as, because I think there's an autocorrecting word or something that does that, um, you know, no one ever, no one even knows what that means. Uh, you know, but, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so I'm, I'm not all negative on it. So it may be that we start calling our diseases novel beta coronavirus clade C type 1, oh, um, wow. which kind of does take the creativity out of things. <laughs> so it will, will, it'll be though. interesting to see how these WHO guidelines are adopted with new emerging infectious diseases. What about Latin? I mean, I'm thinking of uh, or Latin and Greek, like autism, schizophrenia. Why don't you kind of describe mm. what the disease is mm. and crazily turn it into Latin or Greek names? I've as never as long as the name is something people can remember. I mean, mm, the H1N1 yeah. stuff is, that's tricky because if someone came to me and said, you've got H1N3, I'd go, well, is that the good one or the bad <laughs> yeah, exactly. is, is that, is that <laughs> Panadol or death? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't know. So, yeah, so it does yeah. raise a whole question around mm. how we communicate mm. and, and, and how names can be very important. Mm. Indeed. <laughs> Dr. Cromer. Well, I first briefly want to start by saying, isn't isn't science isn't science amazing? Which we which we thought we are. <laughs> now, one of the reasons why science is amazing is because we're all prepared to be wrong. If something mm-hmm. else comes along, we're prepared to be wrong. Mm-hmm. Two quick things this week. One, we found a we in the royal we have found a warm-blooded fish, and it's a beautiful oh, kind wow. of uh, fish. Um, called the opar, not Oprah, but o- a, a, a big fat round fish called o- the opar. Well, I'm blooded. Five degrees C in all its all its tissues. The only fish like it. So someone taught me recently on this show that warm-blooded and cold-blooded were inappropriate terms to use on any animal. Uh, it's in relative terms. Mm. I think it might have been Dr. Jen. Mm. Mm. And the second thing is we found... It was found that oct- octopuses, and it is pussies, not pie, really? can... It's to do with Latin and Greek again. Yeah, can actually walk. They can walk, but they don't. They're the only animal that can walk, but they have an irregular pattern. They don't trot. Anybody who has horses and dogs will know mm. there's different mm. patterns. They have no pattern. Yeah. They, mm. a, they have a general axis and then they go. So, uh, hooray for science. So, but my main story uh, is a, an amazing paper that came out in Nature Communications this week called Widespread Seasonal Gene Expression Reveals Annual Differences in Human Immun- Immunity and Physiology. In a nutshell, they looked at how uh, our genes work as a function of when we uh, of when we were born, and what happens is that um, is oh, not when we were born, but when when someone takes our blood for mm. a sample. So many many studies take human blood samples to look at many different things, including gene activity or gene expression, and they never they never actually thought about season of birth before. This mm. paper found that one fifth, so four thousand 
more than one fifth, four thousand human genes change their activity according to season. Mm. And immune genes are highly expressed in um, the winter, which kind of makes sense, but also northern winter and southern hemisphere winter. Mm. Um, mm. And it's a bit. Slightly different in, in countries like the Gambia, their changes uh, occur during uh, the rainy season when immune genes are needed. So it, 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 I'm, I rushed straight to my students and said, "Put this into your, your data. Find out whether the, uh, the you know the expression that we've already measured relates to relates to birth." Mm. Uh, and so, but it's other. It's also interesting cause, because there's a whole set of, dis- in fact, just about every disease, every disease that's non-communicable, every chronic disease is related, has some of its roots in inflammation. So to what extent does season of birth influence anything from obesity to autism and schizophrenia? The answer is nobody's looked, but everybody's rushing to their databases at mm. the moment. Mm. Mm. Interesting stuff. Well, um, I saw it. You know, not all articles gel with me. I don't know. Every now and then I find one that things a bit dodgy and there was one uh, that was reported uh, in new scientists this week from a paper um produced by Reyes del paso who is uh from the university of juan in spain and it was about the idea that if you hold your breath you can dampen your pain response oh, i saw that and I thought, oh, okay this sounds interesting and i thought you know i've got kids so you know, sooner or later they're going to get immunized for various things at you know, various times in their life or mm. get needles. Thought maybe I'd just get them to hold their breath and they'll all be well. Mm. <laughs> this could be the yeah, best dad in the world. Um, <laughs> they're still holding their breath now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Still, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. Quite, it's quite interesting because that's the opposite advice you give um, to yeah. women in, who are undergo who are giving birth. Oh, well, yeah. well not to hold your breath. Yeah, yeah. Well, the interesting yeah. thing is here is uh, you know this guy's linked it to that as well. Um, but what what the bit I find a bit dodgy here is what he's done is he he's taken um, you know a, a Small, relatively small group of people is about 38, uh, 38 people and he sort of squashed their fingernails you know I'm not sure if this done with a hammer or just with a small <laughs> vice but <laughs> anyway and beforehand there was a group and he, beforehand he said you know can you you, you hold your breath and, and we'll um, rate the pain and then um, he did another version where he rated the pain uh, without them holding their breath now the key is you have to hold your breath before the so you have to know it's coming mm-hmm. so you can't this is not something where you stub your toe and you go oh i'll quickly hold my breath yeah. uh no sorry folks that the ship has sailed you have to do it beforehand because you know the idea is that our body actually has this natural capacity to kind of protect itself mm-hmm. and to prepare itself and but but what he found was that um in terms of these ratings that people were giving for pain it went from a 5.5 just down to a five so we're only Ooh. talking about you know, ten percentish, and to me, you know, that seems on average. Uh, on average. Well, you know, I, mm. I would argue that could just be distraction. Yeah. yeah. You know, I've got to do something else. Yeah. Hold my breath uh, while you're yeah. doing yeah. this. Yeah. Is that the appropriate control? Yeah. Yeah. Is the yeah. other appropriate control to do something else that you need to focus yeah, on? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. for example, um, if I was to slap you in the back of the head right before I squeezed your finger, mm. how much would the pain go down? Probably a bit more, actually. I suspect. Yeah. yeah Especially Lauren. You just come. Just come <laughs> a bit closer. Let's do an experiment. <laughs> Slap each, slap, slap each of us and half of us will hold our yeah. breath. Yeah. 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 But, but yeah. if you said to someone, think of the colour red yeah. Or yeah, versus right hold your breath, you yeah. know, do, do, do a task yeah. that requires yeah. a, a focus. And, there's, there's and I think that's why you've got to think really carefully about what how these experiments are, are mm. designed. And mm. this is where critical thinking really comes oh, into play. You know, mm-hmm. and exactly. And, and bringing in ideas like, okay, what sort of things really change the way we think? So mm. if I showed you a picture of a person who was in extraordinary pain 
mm-hmm. would that change my perception of pain at that time? Mm-hmm. And when I have a small amount of pain inflicted to me, would I be more or less sensitive to it? Yeah. I think when we're talking about a 10% difference here, yeah. put it this way, I won't be getting my kids to hold their breath. Because for one, when you do that, you tense up. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, there are, I mean, this was initiated with some, some actual, you know, I would call actual science. <laughs> um, <laughs> rude, but, um, and that was that, you know, when, when you, when you do stress yourself, um, your blood pressure obviously um, changes because if you think of us on the savannah, you know, we see the lion, <laughs> we need to get away fast, mm. um, our blood pressure has to change to do that. But then there is a point where we need to change that. And we have very sophisticated mechanisms for, for lowering the blood pressure back down. So we don't just think, oh, I'm okay now. There's a whole lot of inputs that our bodies get to allow you to lower it down. And, mm-hmm. and that's what this guy was trying to show is that you could actually, you know, you could trick the body into thinking, oh, well, mm-hmm. actually now we're, we're good that's to go okay. and, and don't, don't feel this, this point of, of pain. Mm-hmm. Um, but then later we'll switch it off. Mm-hmm. So it just desensitizes. But I, I think it's, um, yeah, it, it's a little light on mm-hmm. in terms of the detail. Um, I was thinking of doing those experiments on rats, but that's another story, but, uh, cause they have empathy now. Yeah, exactly. uh, so, but, um, can you get, can you just not tell the participants that you're going to slap them? Can, can you just kind of put them onto a task like holding their breath or, or being mindful mm. about something and then slap them and say, uh, and then measure their response, and then say well, that's because pa- you're allowed. Ethics will allow you to fool participants if it's yeah. not if it's not I, helpful. That's good that ethics are in the room. Um, <laughs> but you know, the, the other part for me though too is how much of this is just you know knowing it's coming mm. yeah. um, because you exactly, do prepare yeah. yourself. Yeah. And I think you know people have such a, a, a varied. Um, way in which they respond to pain and mm. the influence of pain. So, and various types of pain. So, some people could handle the squash fingernail, whereas mm. other people could handle handle a nail being driven into their thigh. Mm. You know, I mean, you know, but so, different people handle different pains in different ways. Mm. Yeah. And another thing, apparently, and you 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 may need to Google this just to make sure I'm not <coughs> BSing. <laughs> Uh, if you swear <laughs> when when you have pain, apparently that dissipates the pain as well. Yeah. yeah. So this was um, this. Uh, it's interesting because this article then led to another article um, that was on a new scientist that actually gave you seven ways to reduce the pain um, that you're feeling, and, and there are a whole lot of them. Um, one was certain perfumes can you know um, because they invoke such strong memories and st- strong emotions mm-hmm. they can actually reduce your, your pain reception yeah this is like a gateway response if you have one stimulus <coughs> it will sort of mm-hmm. block another mm-hmm. um, they, I love the way they named uh, yours Jeff though they, they said curse like a sailor but again these are, all, these are all things that um, that women who are having a baby are told to do like, um, <laughs> you're telling me <laughs> be like, you know, bring, bring some you. perfume or a, um, or a, or a lemon or something or some fresh herbs to smell to distract yeah. you it, ah. one of the ones i love though was cross your arms now i it's, it's interesting because um oh. one of my colleagues at work and i often comment about this because the two of us often cross our arms in meetings mm. and the psychology of that people think it's you're very closed off blah, blah, blah but actually if you have a if you're sitting in crappy meeting room chairs mm. And you have a sore back, which I, I've often had, you know, a sore back from there. Mm. Um, I find crossing my arms actually helps reduce mm. that back pain. And now I'm realizing it's, it's probably actually reducing the pain of being in the meeting. Just don't swear during the meeting. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, and you know, there's a few others, you know, um, I mean, the way these are labeled in new scientists is a little bit, a little bit controversial to me. Um, one's listen to music. I said, fine. Mm-hmm. Another one, I'm not sure this is right for the workplace. I mean, the, the, the title here is just touch yourself. 
Mm. Uh, song behind that. Yeah. And, and well, the, the interesting thing is that's number seven. Number six is, and maybe that's why number seven's there if you can't make number six work. Number six is fall in love. So, <laughs> so, so you stab your toe. You have to really quickly go yeah. and find someone oh, to fall yeah, in love exactly. with. And if, you, if you can't, touch yourself. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I mean, this is. I mean, this is a sort of great science. That we're yeah. you know, I mean, you know, they're building a fusion reactor in Europe, in southern mm. France. But touch yourself. <laughs> I think uh, on that note, we might take a break. Um, we'll try these things during the break, folks, and we'll get back to you and let you know whether they work. Although I suspect the fall in love thing's probably sailed for all the people in this room. <laughs> yeah. Yeah? Yeah. All nods? Yeah, done. Yeah, all done. Dusted. Okay. Uh, you're listening to 3 Triple Arts, Einstein and Go-Go. We'll be back in a moment. We have our first guest, first and only guest, I think, for today, um, Alyssa Hill, is going to be talking about autism and all things about that. Uh, stick with us. Three triple Uh, you are listening to 3 Triple R. If you're wondering what that track was as I reached for the piece of paper, it was uh, Emma Louise with Mirrors. Now, we have uh, Dr. Alyssa Hill in the studio. She is a neuroscientist from the Department of Physiology at the University of Melbourne. Welcome back. Hi, Dr. Shane. Hi, everyone. It's great to be here. Yeah, now, you're always uh, up for a good chat when we want to talk about autism and so forth and, and what's going on. And I noticed over recent weeks you've had a lot of, um, I call it fame, with the Department of yeah. Defence in the US program following some of your work thank you why, why don't we start there why uh, autism in the department of defense draw the link for me yeah well that's a good one i always joke that you know they need people that uh break codes and so they're looking for the asperger's <laughs> you know component but uh is that actually, just in the movies or is <laughs> it real maybe that's in the movies no yeah. so when i look more closely at the site they actually you know sponsor a whole range of medical research mm. so i've got um breast cancer we've got um other types of cancer and so on so all kinds of diseases so no, I don't think it's because of that. It's just that they're generous and interested in um, medical research and a whole range of things. Yeah. Now, tell us about the exact work that we're we're talking about here that they profiled. What what's new? That because you've been working in this area for a while, and we've had you on the show a number of times talking about autism. What's new that's come out? So what's new? Well, it's really more about the the way we're approaching uh, this question of gastrointestinal problems in autism. So I guess mm-hmm. I can say in the last few years, this has um, become more of a fact. It is a fact. People have done studies now and it is shown that kids with autism are more likely to have gut problems. And so this is a whole range of things. So, you know, it can range from diarrhea, vomiting, uh, bloating, gastrointestinal pain. And constipation is a big one. So we know now that kids with autism are actually four times more likely to have gut problems than kids without. Now, can I, can I ask a question there just around the, the link? Do kids with autism show up as having gut problems very early on or is it something that develops later? I guess what I'm asking is, is one leading the other? Do we know? Well, we don't know. The jury's out on that. But, look, um, one thing I can say is that the symptoms seem to change over time, Mm -hmm. right? So it seems like the gastrointestinal system's a bit out of whack. So you can start with diarrhoea, for example, then you might progress and you get more often constipation or the vice versa and have all these things interchanging. But you've generally got an underlying problem. And it can be there very early 
I don't know of studies looking at how early that's seen. Because, right. of course, you get the diagnosis around about two years. Mm, so who's mm. got who's got such a great memory that they go back and go, mm, what, yeah. diarrhea three times a week, you know. Yeah, um, babies do all sorts of weird stuff. They do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what, what I can say is that's a, that's a good thing that's come out, that that's definitely um, a, an issue um, that you're more likely to see in kids with autism, that they've got gut problems. So the work that was featured is how we're approaching um, looking at what might be the causes of that and... And so we know on the genetic side in autism that there's a bunch of really rare mutations, but they're found at the interface of neurons. So they mess up the wiring basically in the brain. Mm-hmm. Now, what people often forget is that we're carrying around a second brain in us, and that's controlling our gut function. Mm. So our approach has been to look at um, mice that have a mutation found in autism patients that messes up this wiring, but having a look at what that does to gut motility, for example, gut function, and it, it's—I mean, so much has changed about this, you know, these sort of neurons in the gut idea and so forth of late. I mean, I have to say, you know, this last week I've had this cold, and, and now it's turned into a bit of a chesty thing. I'm, I'm kind of a little freaked out. I don't want to take any antibiotics because I'm worried about just what it will do to the good stuff in my gut, you know, because we hear about this now all the time. And I think I do not, unless I'm desperate, I do not want to be taking antibiotics because it just seems to decimate what's going on in the gut. Is that? Well, I reckon that's a good thing because, you know, you don't mm. want to get... You don't want to do it um, anyway, yeah. You're not supposed mm. to be taking a lot of antibiotics because of um, you people becoming resistant. And you would never take antibiotics for a cold anyway. No, no, but I've got a, a sort of secondary game. sort of a... <laughs> <laughs> thing. Can I have okay. a secondary infection? Is that okay? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Please take yeah. one. <laughs> yes, I agree. Having that- a viral infection can put you at risk of a secondary bacterial infection, for Thank which you, antibiotics are an appropriate treatment. Yeah. I'd just like to note to everyone out there, there isn't a single medical practitioner in the room <laughs> with the vague with the vague connection of Dr. Lauren being an optometrist, which is about as close as it gets. Can I just go back to the fact that there's a brain in my gut? I mean, we're not talking about an actual brain brain but you're just you're talking about a, a nervous system how, how can you just describe that a little bit more yeah yeah yeah, sure so you know the gut's a tube we kind of get that and it's got two layers of muscle and in between in between those layers we've got sort of mesh of neurons connected up so it's a nice system yeah yeah i know mm. it's nice so <laughs> and what's also really nice is that you can measure output so I'm simplifying it, but one of those systems of neurons is really responsible for secretion, okay? Mm-hmm. And the other system is responsible for getting the muscles to contraction and the motility. Mm-hmm. So if you imagine in the lab, we do things like look at the contraction of the gut on its own, and that's another nice thing. You can cut out the gut tube. I don't recommend doing this in people. Um, but you can analyse um, the rate of contraction and how many contractions you have over a certain time. It works without the input of the brain. So you've got a really yeah. nice system. And if you mess with that nervous system, you can um, measure this on those outputs. How many mm. contractions? Looks like a looks like a little worm in a bath. So, so one of the questions I have here, we, we have um, people with autism and there's associated issues there with the, the, the sort of neurons and, and so forth and what's going on. Then you have this, this issue in the gut. Does that mean that the same problems that you're seeing, you know, and the gut is affected obviously in, in kids in particular with autism, does that mean that these neural issues in the brain are also in the gut or is there a link between the two? I mean, do we know that? Yeah, so it's a really complex area. What we've been doing is looking at the gut in isolation because we think that's really important. What's that mm. nervous system in the gut doing? And yes, are those same brain genes expressed in the gut? And we've found that that they are and can they disrupt 
function in the gut, right? So the other thing is that you touched on there is that there's a gut-brain axis. So there's communication. You know when mm. you get stressed. Mm. What you happens? Sick of the guts, you, yeah. might, you might run off to the loo or something. Okay, so gut-brain interactions. Now, there's not a lot known about exactly how that happens, but I would go a little bit further and say that people are bringing in the microbiome on that on that side mm. as well, so the bacteria that lives in your gut, which is really complex. Mm. And Yeah, I mean, I... I know that it, in autism, part of the autism diagnosis is restricted behaviours. Now, these restricted behaviours can uh, be manifest as only eating certain foods, for example, certain coloured foods. Um, can what role does this play in in what's wrong with the, the 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 microbiota and the gut in people with? autism we, you can never generalize with autism but to what extent do you think that this restrictive dietary behavior is influencing super question super question and you know the studies that have been done so far there's too few of them and they've actually not been very rigorous and you can look at some reviews saying that and there's only a couple of studies i think that have controlled it's really hard to do a study um with parents and a child and to do it blinded so that the parent doesn't know what the child's eating it's almost impossible mm. so you've mm. got to think about the logic in experimental design there so i would say that that area is growing um yeah. we really don't know enough and i would say we don't even know enough about what a healthy microbiome looks like yet to start thinking about treatments although you know there are some um areas where I think they're doing transfusions for multiple sclerosis and so on. That's a, that's a study, I think, that started in Sydney in Australia. But um, we really don't know enough about the mm. basics. Mm. <laughs> now, Lisa, um, let's talk more about the upcoming meeting in August because the last time we had you on, we were talking about this amazing conference that you were, you were running, which was, you know, we, we hear about scientific conferences all the time, but this was one that wasn't just the scientists. It brought in the patients and the families and the clinicians and everyone involved in this spectrum of activity around autism. And, and related conditions. Um, you've got another one coming up in, in August. In August, yep. yeah. Tell us all about that. Yeah, we do. So we've um, rebranded, and we've got this really cool name now, and it's called Find Frontiers in Neurodevelopmental Disorders. And um, we've got a website, so you can search Find Autism. And we have got some of the you know great uh, researchers internationally coming across. We've got Thomas Bourgeon, who's going to come and talk about... Um, uh, he was the first person to discover genes uh, causing autism. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's going to be great. We've, he's from... Um, France. We've got uh, Toru Takumi coming over to talk about sleep disorders in autism from Japan. Mm-hmm. It's really multicultural. We've got Ingrid Sheffer speaking, and we probably all know her, and she's um, an expert in epilepsy genetics and also in autism. And um, Gina. we've got Gina Konopka coming from the USA, and she's going to talk about language disorders in autism. So this is all going to be great science, and there's a, there's a bunch of other people as well. But what we do is we get families coming along, we get teachers, we get researchers and clinicians, and we all rub shoulders during the coffee break and ask questions. Mm. So how do you make sure that with these amazing international speakers that they're pitching at a level that everyone in those diverse sort of groups can understand and get something out of? It's a no-jargon zone. <laughs> no jargon. So I actually put that in the invitation when they're going to speak. So we give yep. them an idea of who's going to be in the audience, what size, and so on. That's all. That, it's nice to tell people that. But if you're going to use jargon, define it and you know make mm. it make it understandable. And I just want to add, it's free. The meeting's free. Ah. Hmm. So. Okay. Now, look, it, it's, I mean, the last one was a big success. So this is, um, you can go and have a look at findautism.org, folks, if you want to check that out. Now, Alyssa, before we let you go, I just wanted to, we, we have to touch on this 
immunization autism um, scenario because I'm not even sure scenario is the right word you know lack of link um, is a better term negative um, story uh, yeah, just yeah. lack of story yeah I mean this story. is the myth that will the, not die yeah the myth that will not die <laughs> I mean you know this started of course with a with a paper which has now been retracted I mean that paper has been ditched as garbage so the journal that originally published it has um, retracted it and said no this is um, scientifically invalid and there have been many papers since that it, it's interesting um, when you hear about how many people have tried desperately to show a link between these two things and have failed. So, you know, the best science in the world has absolutely fundamentally failed, no matter how big the sample size, to show a link between these two things, right? Is that That's absolutely true? true. Look, just vaccination does not cause autism. Mm. So... Now, I, I think, um, I mean, one of the things we were talking about this the other day when I bumped into you, and it's important for people to hear your story with your kids because you essentially had to put your money where your mouth is in this scenario, didn't you? I mean, just tell us about that. Both my children are vaccinated. Right. Yeah, that's the question, right? Yeah. So my eldest son does have autism. Mm. And so, you know, I guess um, going in there and thinking about the vaccination, you've you've got to be clear in your head about what, what's going on. So, you know, I, I did a bit of research. And as a scientist, I'll just say that there are just so many studies showing that there's no connection. There's mm. no connection, no matter way, which way you look at it. You know, there's an argument. Some some parents are saying, oh, there's too many vaccinations for our little ones and so on. That's not the case. Some people are worried about the thimerosal um, being in the vaccination. Not the case. Mm-hmm. Not an issue. All being proven. There's no, there's no link. Mm. Yeah. And so you, of course, went ahead and vaccinated your second child Anyway, you know what? He's fine. He's really fine. But it must have been that must have been a challenge for you, given given all this background noise, uh, non scientific in content, but still all this background noise sitting there saying, "Don't do this." That's right, and I I sympathise with parents who don't have access to the scientific information Mm. and aren't able to um, look at the logic um, behind that. So, Mm -hmm. I I think the the media hasn't done us any great service in that in that area. Not at all. And the other thing we were talking about in the break as well is the fact that there are some amazing websites that look really professional and they look Mm. like they are done by doctors and by people that know, and they just break things that are just not true. Mm. That's one of the challenges. Yeah, yeah. And and yeah, and talking of that kind of thing. I've spoken to uh, a number of people who've uh, taken the law into their own hands, as it were, with their own children with autism uh, and other neurodevelopmental conditions as well. And they try a, a famous diet, uh, and and it works. Obviously, I've spoken to the, a person who's tried it and it works. I haven't spoken to the ten others who tried it and it didn't work, or it even mm. did some harm. But this uh, this area is now being even recognised by nature as an N of one intervention. And but there are sometimes you think, well, if it's just a diet, it can't do any harm. But the answer is yes, it can do harm sometimes. Ex- anything exclusion diet should ring bells in your head. There's no. Uh, you're mi- what are you missing out on? But having said that, some of these diets, there must be some scientific evidence behind why they're working. Is it the microbiota component? One I was reading the other day had a whole lot of probiotics in it. But I think we've got to do that research, looking Absolutely. at a group as a whole, but also even looking at small groups of people. Is there a gene environment interaction that makes it work for some people? Totally agree there. I what look. I would say that autism is so heterogeneous. You know, you know one kid with autism, that's all you know. You really mm. just don't know anything about the next one. It's precisely because of the reasons that you that you say that genetics are going to be different, the environments are definitely different. 
probably there are some diets that are helping some of the kids, but they're not coming out in these studies if mm. they're just going to take a group of, I don't know, 20 or 30 kids mm. that they've picked from the local kinder or wherever. You know, I think we need a whole lot more work in that area, and it's not easy. It's really not easy, that mm. area. That's where all that big data idea comes in, where you, you essentially need every parent who has a child with autism putting in every dietary input that has some positive or negative influence and collecting all of that data all at once. Yeah, they're called um, aggregated N of one trials. So Mm. where each Mm. individual person has their own um, really uh, uh, like personal health record, electronic personal Mm. health record that that they can do. And then it's through that aggregation of all of those N of ones Mm. when you actually draw that together. And so that is actually where medicine is heading in terms of personalising, turning anecdotes into data. Mm. I would just make one more point on that, just on the practical side. If you've got a kid with autism, (laughs) they don't eat much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, if you've got a diet of rice and tuna yep. and toast and Vegemite, you're not going to be able to try a whole lot yeah. of broccoli or something like that. Mm. You just won't be able to, you know, think of your, your general, you know, toddler times 10 difficulty. Mm. Yeah. Alyssa, it's absolutely great having you in here because it's, it, you know, it really matters, I think, for, for people out there who are in the same situation you're in, where they're a parent and they have a, a child, whether it be young or older, um, with autism, having a neuroscientist who, who knows, you know, goes home at night and knows this situation and is working on it during the day, I think is a big difference to people who don't see it and don't interact. And I guess that's where this idea of your conference has such, such validity because it brings the families in. And, and I have to say, if you're a researcher and and you go to that conference and you meet those families, it has to change the way you go about your day-to-day business. So good luck. Um, I'll read the website again, folks, if you want to have a look. It's findautism.org. We'll tweet it and put it on their website and um, get on board if you're, if you're interested. Yeah. Thanks very much. That'd be All great. Right. Good chatting with you. We will, um, we'll have you on again, of course. Oh, we, thanks. We love getting you on. Folks, you're listening to Einstein and Gogo. We're going to be back in just a few moments. Uh, Dr. Lauren has some uh, issues with the budget. It's going to take about 15 minutes, I think, so it should be fun. Uh, you're listening to 3 R. 3 R. Uh, we're back. Geez, I tell you, it is, from my point of view, absolutely half-baked the show today, folks. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> the guys in the studio have been brilliant, but uh, I'm, I'm half asleep. Um, Gurumal Yunapingu with uh, Gupuri just then. Beautiful music. Uh, mm. Yeah, yeah, really good stuff. Um, that's why I chose it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, Dr. Lauren, you have been looking at the budget situation mm-hmm. and uh, nothing for the bionic eye. <laughs> no, sadly not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, what, what was in the, bu- the, the 2015, 2016 federal budget for science? Yeah, look, it's, it's an interesting one. Um, look, to be honest, I mean, I think there might be a little bit more perhaps than last year, but there's not enough. I mean, and we were just talking before about the fact that apparently if you actually search through the budget speech, there is no mention of the word science at all. Is that correct, Dr. Crystal, I believe? Uh, you was can, tweeted? Yeah, you can um, um, search the, the budget speeches. and yeah. If you look at the word clouds, 
innovation don't really feature. That's it, that's it. But look, I mean, there are definitely some some things that, you know, there's there's pros and cons, I guess, in the budget. Um, One of the ones I guess I wanted to start with is really this question of the NHMRC and the ARC. So for those of you who don't know, that's the National Health and Medical Research Council and the Australian Research Council, and they're the two main federal funding bodies for research. Uh, And I think, look, I was just disappointed that there's been no change in, in their funding at all going forward. And the reason that's a little bit worrying is because our, our success rates are now approaching 10%. And for any of you in the audience who are, are a scientist or know a scientist, you will know that literally a quarter of the year, it, minimum for a lot of people, is spent on putting in these applications. So I found that disappointing uh, that we, uh, you know, we're not willing to invest more in that. And uh, and I think you have to say that the success rates aren't 10% because there's not good ideas out no. there. I think the, the most startling statistic is that, you know, 75% of mm-hmm. applications that are submitted are, are deemed to be fundable. fundable but not funded. Yeah. And I'm reviewing grants at the moment and mm. it's it's really sad to read a brilliant yeah. grant and there's one little chink in it, like somebody's track record and he's thinking, yeah. well, that might not make the cut but it's a great, it's a great idea. Grant. Yeah, yeah. And you have to have done... Just about the whole research yep. before you can can do it. There's no funding for Blue Sky. Yeah, that's it. No exactly. funding. Exactly. Uh, it's, it's just almost so like, sad to yeah, read these kind of grants. There's so little funding available that you have to back things that are going to work. And to back the things that are going to work, you have to have already proved that they're yeah. going to work. And that's really against the, the science of discovery. Yeah, mm. for sure. For it's, sure. A, it's interesting, though, because I know, um, and I, I, I think the, the percentage of grants that are funded that, you know, are deemed by other scientists as fund worthy, mm. I think that's a real, um, is very very low and it's poor yeah. but it's funny i was talking to um my business partner outside um here uh, over the weekend or earlier in the weekend and he said yes it's just like being in business now isn't it mm. in that you know when small businesses ap- approach venture capitalists and so forth for money the chance of you know a good a, a, vi- a perfectly viable business getting mm. money is very very low mm. and i said well that's that's true but you know, we're talking about the, the base here. You know, it's the mm-hmm. base that builds everything. And so if you take out the base, there's a lot of other stuff that then doesn't happen. And, and, and true businesses have trouble getting getting this sort of money, but they're not the base of, of knowledge. And that's, I think, that's what we're losing here is that investment mm-hmm. 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now. Yeah. And that's, I mean, when you think about the, the, you know, the percentage of what we're talking here as well. So at the moment, it's around about 1% of what we spend on health goes mm. to, to, to medical research. And, and mm. so when you think about it in that terms, I mean, we, we pride ourselves on being a knowledge country and pushing things forward, but yet we're not investing in it. And so um, I was quite you know, happy to see that Labor came back and in their response they were saying that they would like to dedicate uh, 3% of GDP to, to, to these things, which is, you know definitely a step up. I think the call for 3% has been around for about mm. 25 years yeah. um, and there were countries that were approaching 3% before the the, um, the GFC mm. and it seems to have definitely slipped backwards now. The, uh, you know, I, I think we're a long way, most countries, from mm. getting to 3% but I remember those calls being around a long, long time ago. Yeah. Can, uh, can I tell you one piece of good news though? Mm, yes, please. Um, some people might remember a few weeks back, uh, or m- m- months maybe, mm. um, we had a guest on who's, who's uh, again, uh, a little bit sick to they said name failing me but we talked about the um 
that Stall Underground Physics Laboratory, the gold mine that oh, they were. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, they did fund that. That's Katie, oh, Katie, Dr. Katie Mack. Katie Mack. Yes. Um, they oh, did. she's not a doctor yet. She, no, she's, she's not. Sure oh. she is. Sure yeah. she is. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway, they did fund um, that. Um, mm. They funded this, um, you know, under this National Stronger Regions Fund, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. an extra, you know, $1.75 million for mm-hmm. the construction of this physics laboratory in the old disused stall gold mine, which yeah. I think is great. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's taking, you know, serious physics work to a country town. You know, this this is really impressive. Mm-hmm. And the synchrotron, we were talking to one of the one of the top people at the yep. synchrotron, but uh, Dr. Lauren, can you comment about the uh, about the robbing Peter to pay Paul idea? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, that's a, it's an excellent one. So, I mean, and I think um, definitely when you look at the, the Medical Research Future Fund, that's one area for me where I was like, oh, hang on. So, for those of you who didn't mm-hmm. realise that, that that is back on the table, um, but it will no longer be linked to the GP co-payments. But they are still saying that uh, you know the funding from this will come from other savings in the health budget, and that is always the concern. And look, I do understand in politics you have to get the money from somewhere, but it is a concern when we're taking it f- from patients to to fund future improvements for patients. Mm. But the uh, CRCs as well wasn't yeah. there also a a, a a, a positive and a negative with this with the with the CRCs. Yeah, so there's yeah. Yeah. money, money coming out of the CRCs. I mean, mm. the, one, one other good thing they did do was, um, you know, the increase funding, which goes yes. into many labs, was yes. extended by one year. It's still drip feeding. Mm-hmm. And and this is the thing that makes me cross. Is we're all sitting here <laughs> and we're all saying, oh, it's good. We got a little yeah, bit no, for this and a little bit for that. I kind feeding. of feel like science is coin operated in yeah. Australia. They oh, put a bit of money in and then the, <laughs> and then it goes around and then it starts to run out and we yep. just need a couple more coins and a couple. Uh, Where is our long-term vision for science in Australia? Because Mm -hmm. why are we still happy that we... Oh, we didn't get a cut, hooray. You know, scientists should be out there saying, we're sick of being coin-operated, we're Mm. sick of being Mm. drip-fed. Science underpins 22% of Australia's Mm. GDP, according to a recent economic study. And that Mm. was even excluding health and medical research. For something that's so fundamental to our economy, Mm. every politician should be talking about this in the Mm. lead-up to the 2016 election. It's it's, it's funny you say that. just have this flashback to when um, a few years back when um, Gillard was in office and there was that threat of a $400 million cut to, mm. and you Dr Crystal were, you know, maybe played a small part in stopping that. <laughs> and I remember at the time having the exact same attitude that everyone was hooray mm. and I was like, no, 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 no. No hooray here. We're just back to being screwed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, we are not hooraying the fact that we didn't get a cut. Mm. We should be saying, no, we've taken this outrageous thing off the table mm. but you're still screwing people and in mm. fact the entire thing from i remember saying this at the time the mm. entire thing was gaming mm. it was let's make them happy mm-hmm. by letting them win this war mm. yep. and then we'll we'll take over here we'll get them there. and yeah. it just and it's the same thing again as mm. the, you know taking money out of science i will put a little bit here mm. i think it, this drip feeding issue that mm. i think the coin operated mentality is a really good way to see mm. it crystal because you know this idea that science can be done with one year time frames mm. is utter utter nonsense yeah. Mm. And, and people are, are intelligent intelligent people or people in general i won't label all researchers in, uh, as intelligent <laughs> but 
they are thinking, well, hold on, the government's not investing. Where, where can I go that's not mm. Australia, that's, that's, that, that, the, that the government in, um, invests in science? How yeah. about the US? How about UK? How about Singapore? So mm-hmm. we're going to get the brain drain more than mm. we have. We are still getting it, mm. but I we'll have it more, I think, I, think, I think that's an important point. I mean, you, you, no nation ever saved their way to prosperity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, you can't, you, you can't build a nation yeah. by, by saving money. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's like if we're going to build to go forward, if we're going to create, honestly, if we're going to create high-value, high-tech jobs for the future, yeah. where are you going to get them? And it's through science, innovation and technology. Mm. Oh, for yeah. sure. And, um, and, but I think coming back to your point about the Medical Research Future Fund, I think you, you do have to then think, well, okay, the Medical Research Future Fund is going to put $400 million mm-hmm. into health and medical research over the next four years. Mm-hmm. What are we going to do with that $400 million? Mm-hmm. And yep. if we've had to take it out of the health system, how do we use that money, not as business as usual, not to just keep doing what we're doing, mm-hmm. how do we, and we as you know, the science research community, say, well, let's use this money to make a difference. Mm-hmm. Where is it that we can make a difference in actually not just you know discovering things and, and, and doing research and publishing papers, how do we actually reach out and make difference to patients? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, I think, and that's I think the that's, saving part. That's mm-hmm. where we, we need to work out ways mm. to translate the research into savings for the health industry because mm. if they're getting a cut yeah we're gonna have to save them money yeah for sure somehow yeah mm. and so so i think it's a, it's a great opportunity to think wow here's 400 million dollars over four years mm. how can we be innovative in using this mm. to make a difference yeah yeah mm. that's a good point it's like almost like a blank blank slate time isn't it yeah. you know we can actually yeah. really change things now yeah let's 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 yeah. let's change it up i like science. it <laughs> i totally like it so there were some good things in the budget yeah um, yeah in that respect i think it was quite heartening to hear Bill Shorten's um, federal budget reply because it's one of the first times that it's just like, what? There's a politician in, in, <laughs> in Parliament talking about science and vision mm-hmm. and, you know, a lot of the criticisms being, well, how are you going to fund it and where's the money going to come from? Mm-hmm. It's like, well, we'll work that out. Mm-hmm. Mm. Set yourself a vision. Say, mm. this is what we want to be this as a nation, mm. you know, and build it. Mm-hmm. I, I think... I was inspired. Yeah, I completely agree. And I guess the other quick one there as well was um, I was a little bit sad to see that the funding for the conversation um, isn't going to be renewed, which is a bit sad going forward because I love the conversation. I think it's such a great way for for scientists to sort of get their their word out. Um, So we should say for for people out there who don't know what this is, is, it's an an online um, media source, if you like, um, that produces content direct from the researchers or the academics involved mm-hmm. so rather than your typical talk to a journalist and get some you know to be frank usually half-baked version mm-hmm. of reality mm-hmm. um this is where the academics are supported by by staff at the the conversation yeah. and they they essentially write the material themselves and it ends up online for everyone to read and yeah. it's been very successful the model's been duplicated in in uh, the u.s mm-hmm. the uk and they've now in recent, africa yeah they've recently yeah. launched all over the world yes. and 25 yeah of their funding mm. was coming from federal sources mm. so yep. that's a big budget mm. cut to yeah. just suddenly and most of the most radar. of the rest comes from universities so i mean one of the arguments has been that you know it's kind of all from the one source anyway mm. but i think this is one of those areas where if you if you truly want this sort of independent content coming through mm. unfortunately you know the taxpayer has to pony up some cash to get that mm. because mm. as soon as you bring in the big commercial drivers mm. for it then that that independence starts to mm. drift away which we've seen in you know many 
media mm. media outlet. Yeah. So, yeah, but it is. I mean, I think it's the strength of it, like you said, Dr. Shane, is that fact that it's the direct word from the research, and mm. yeah, it's what we do here on Einstein and GoGo. You know, we actually have people coming in talking about their work without that middle person, and yeah. you know, I think we need to be encouraging that as much as we can. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the sad part about this, we're not talking about a large amount of money. No. It's one of those things where you look at. I always look. I think if I was in politics, mm. I'd, I'd have. To, I'd want a chart that showed me impact versus input. Yes. And the conversation is one where the input in terms of taxpayer money is yep. very low, mm. but the actual impact is very, very high, similar yep. to funding science. Yeah. Yep. Whereas when you look at you know other expenditures, where frankly the input can be almost you know the, yep. sorry, the the impact can be almost bloody negative. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, political advertising, for example, mm-hmm. exactly. you know, doesn't get you anywhere. Hmm. Um, one of the things I liked in the budget was investment in um, tropical health. So yeah. um, there was uh, funding to look at Australia's tropical health capacity because we have great um, research in um, malaria, TB, HIV. Um, and so I think that's a really great initiative that's mm-hmm. going forward. So I was excited about that. Mm. Definitely. Definitely. So what do we call it? Vanilla. 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 <laughs> I heard someone, Doug Hilton used that term the other day. I heard him from mm-hmm. the high to describe something I don't think you liked. Yeah. So, <laughs> poor poor vanilla. Term. It's actually an excellent flavour. It's a, it's a great flavour. <laughs> In those vanilla pots. But there's always a need to add something. I, don't know. You know, I do like yeah. vanilla. But yeah, so, you know, not, not awful, not great, just middle of the road, but, but I, certainly but not much for science. Business as usual is the biggest risk for Australia. Yeah, mm-hmm. We time. need to be creating a new future for and, ourselves. And with more researchers, yeah. there's less share of the pie. Yeah. Well, folks, we're out of time. We're going to have to hand over to Cam and Matt Stedman over there from Eat It. You've been listening to Einstein and Gogo. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Remember, science is everywhere, and we'll talk to you again next week. Have a great sunny Sunday. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.